let's broaden our discussion to the topic of sexuality and discipleship. Sexuality and discipleship. When we are talking about LGBTQ issues, it is easy to think that that is the only group that needs to get their acts together. And I am, of course, reminded of that very basic point Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount, before you go pointing at a speck in someone else's eye, you really ought to do something about that log in your own. I do believe that in general, there is a very prevalent, prominent problem of sexual compromise within the body of Christ at large. There are unacceptably high numbers of Christian men and women privately using internet pornography, engaging in sex before marriage, engaging in adulterous behavior, attending places that basically commercialize sex. And the problem of moral compromise in the church at large creates some very broad problems in which other problems tend to thrive. So when we talk about sexuality and discipleship, I suppose we could also say we're talking about walking with integrity. For Christians in general, walking with integrity. Uh, integrity, we get that from the Latin integris. And uh, in first and second century Rome, why when a centurion was inspecting the troops, he would slam his fist into the shield of the soldiers and he would shout, integritas, integritas. And that would be his response if he slammed into the shield and he heard the, the tone that told him the metal is pure. It's uncompromised. Integritas. You know, an interesting point. Eventually, some imperial bodyguards changed the saying to hail Caesar. At first it was integritas, meaning what matters is the integrity. Somewhere along the line, somebody said a person matters more than integrity. Well, I think that's what we're facing today. There was a time it was broadly understood if something is wrong, something is wrong. The discussion is over. But today, many within the body of Christ are saying something may be wrong, but my pleasure is necessary. I deserve a break. Everybody is doing this. Nobody's getting hurt. It's not that big of a deal. Hail Caesar. The individual is taking precedent over the principle. And because of that, the problem of compromise is, I believe, widespread within the body. And as a result, what's happened to our shield? The metal is not as pure and uncompromised as it needs to be. How long can a body exist when it is thus compromised? I firmly believe that doctrinal integrity and moral integrity serve as a kind of immune system for the body. Now, one of the horrors of any disease is that if the immune system is compromised, 
the individual is much more susceptible to diseases that otherwise would not affect the individual. That, for example, is the horror of AIDS. People do not die of AIDS per se. They die of the diseases that they are affected by because they have acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Their immune system is not able to combat these diseases, whereas in a healthy body it would. So within the body of Christ, there are many heresies, problems that would not affect a healthy body, but if the body is compromised, we become infected. This is why, of course, it's everybody's business. That is to say, everybody within the church, because Paul told the Romans, when one member of the body is compromised, when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. It's never just about you. For all of those reasons, then, I think it behooves us to look at the problem of proper stewardship and improper stewardship, I should say. Let's start by clarifying why we even want to bother talking about this. Why is it so important in 2020 to be talking about the need for walking with integrity as a believer who is also sexual? I am saved, I am being sanctified, and absolutely I am sexual. None of those contradicts the other. Saved, sanctified, and quite sexual, which means I am called to be a steward of my sexuality. Why is that such an important issue? Let me look at the first rationale here. We are created beings. We are created beings. And our creator has specific intentions for our existence and our behavior. Now that's foundational to any discussion on sexuality, isn't it? Why am I against pornography, sex before marriage, homosexuality, adultery, prostitution? Why can't people simply do what feels right to them? Well, if I didn't believe we had a creator to answer to, I would agree. Why shouldn't people be free to do what is right in their own eyes? That makes sense. I think it can become confusing, but I at least get it rationally. But, big but, if we are created, that is to say, if you and I didn't just happen, if we have a creator, then it must be assumed that our creator has intentions. Why? Nobody creates anything without intention. Everything you've ever created, you created because you had something in mind. And so when I'm talking with someone who holds a pro-gay viewpoint and they're asking me why I hold the viewpoint I hold, and they say, why are you anti-gay? I like to respond, I'm not so much anti-gay as I am pro-creator. I believe we have a creator. Why? Because I believe it's impossible to have a creation without a creator. Now, what does the creation tell me? That there was a creator and that the creator is benign. Why? Because creation in its untouched state is pleasing. Creation in its untouched state gives comfort to humanity and virtually all of the necessities of life, food, sleep, sex, they're all deeply pleasurable. Why? Why is it so much fun to eat a good meal? Why is it such a pleasure to take a nice nap when you're tired? Why is procreation so darn fun? It doesn't have to be. I mean, for heaven's sake, we could just press a button and make it happen, but that's not what happens. We have an awesome experience. Why? Because of the benign nature of our creator. We are created thereby 
with intentions. That being the case, if I am a created being whose creator created me with intention, my primary goal is not to discover what seems right to me, but what are the intentions of my creator. So we begin with created intent. That is a foundational reason why this discussion is important. We are created beings who must know and be conformed to the intentions of our creator. Now at this point, a gay friend could say, hey, I agree with you. I'm created by God. God loves me. I'm created with intention and I'm gay. Therefore, my creator's intent was that I be gay. Well, that makes sense, makes perfect sense. If it were not for the second rationale, we are a fallen race. We are a fallen race. That is to say, our experience does not match created intent. This is a terribly important point. The human experience does not match the creator's intention. Is that really so illogical? I don't think so. If people can acknowledge that if you have a creation, you have a creator, and if they can acknowledge that that creator is benign and that creator has intention, then they must also acknowledge common sense tells us something is terribly wrong. Because even though much of creation is beautiful, much of what God created has become ugly. Why? Obviously something happened that falls short of created intent. Surely we don't believe God has anything to do with racism. That's impossible. Not a benign God. Surely we believe God has nothing to do with rape, dominance, cruelty, greed, exploitation. Yet all of these are so common to the human experience. Something must have gone wrong. Surely, if the creator is benign and has good intentions, he did not create those things. Thereby, I may assume what scripture plainly teaches. What is axiomatic of the Christian faith is we are not the people we were meant to be. Otherwise, why the need for a savior? No need at all. Why in the Old Testament, the need for blood sacrifice for sin? Because the human experience is not what the creator intended. And does not the book of Genesis bear that out? When we see Adam make a decision to go along with Eve, what happens? Sin enters into the human experience. Humanity has now said to the creator, my will be done. And a holy creator cannot coexist with sin. So what happened when he pronounced what we often call the curse? Essentially, what was he saying? Because of what you have done, the human experience will no longer be what I intended it to be. Now think of what it was in its original state. God said, let us create man in our own image. Adam is created. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a partner fit for him. Eve is created. Then he looks on the male, female he has created. And the wording in Genesis is very specific. They were created in God's image. Male and female, he created he, them. Why? Because both represent God's image. Very important. And this is what cracks me up when people say, oh, you Christians, you're so anti-sex. 
You kidding? We worship the God who authored human sexuality. We didn't think this stuff up. What we do see in the book of Genesis is God looked on Adam and Eve in their raw, naked sexuality, and he applauded and said, that's good. The sexual union is good. The sexual desire is good. The partnering is good. I applaud all of that. That was my idea, and it must have been good. I mean, the only people who could ever say they were exactly as God intended them to be, that would be Adam and Eve before the fall. And it was incredibly pure, it was powerful, and good grief, it must have been sexy. I mean, perfect environment. Nobody had to get up for work in the morning. Perfect bodies. You imagine you never have to suck your gut in when you take your shirt off, just, hello, Eve. Give up all of that for an apple, go figure. Unfortunately for us, what happened in Eden stayed in Eden. And that is when God said, now you're going to experience things I didn't intend. You're going to die. I didn't mean that to happen. Your bodies are going to decay. I didn't mean that to happen. You're going to get in these weird power struggles with each other. That wasn't my plan. The environment is going to be adversarial to you now. I didn't want that. Now, what does that mean? We experience many things God never intended. Much of what we feel, God never intended. Much of what we do, God never intended. And much of what happens to us, God never intended. That's the state of fallen humanity. So our first rationale, we are created beings. Our second rationale, very important, we are all created by God. We are not all God created us to be. We are all created by God. We are not all God created us to be. Much of what we experience falls wildly short of created intent. And that is evidenced in so many things. I believe you can rationally discuss fallen nature with a non-believer just by pointing out, is it not true that so much of what we want is not in our own best interest? Much of what we want is not in our own best interest. We want to get a degree, but we want to flake out. We want to have a healthy relationship, but we want to be selfish. We want to be healthy, but good grief, look at what we crave. I don't think we need to look any further than our appetite to prove the doctrine of fallen nature. Because isn't it interesting? You wake up late at night. You're craving. Do you ever really say to yourself, what I wouldn't give right now for some steamed broccoli? Mm. With lemon juice. Ah, yeah. No, what do we want? The grease and the carbs and the sugar and the intense stuff. Our appetite craves much of what is not in our own best interest. Why do so many married men who have wives who love them and children they value stray outside of their marriage? They crave what is not in their own best interest. Why do so many women choose a jerk of a man to bond with? 
Somebody who's a bad boy and who's trouble and who demeans them and doesn't respect them, they are craving something not in their own best interest. It's part of the human experience, fallen nature. Which leads to a third critical rationale for talking about sexuality and discipleship. In our fallen state, what do we do? We claim ownership. We claim ownership of what properly belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul turns on its head our assumptions about human sexuality. It's all about me. It's all mine, my body, my experience, my right. Where he says to the believer, now to the non-believer, now nah, you're apart from God's authority. You're a free agent. It's not a good place to be. But to the believer, Paul said, what, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Thereby, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body and spirit, which are God's. Now, those of you who've raised children, you must remember when they hit about two, somewhere around there, you start hearing that four-letter word, mine, mine, mine. Everything in the world has become mine. And it's so weird that there can be a toy over there they're not even playing with. You pick it up and you get this outrage. Mine! What's happening? Well, the little narcissistic darlings, they're, they're coming to terms with the fact that the world is not them and they don't like it. Mine! Now think about that as it relates to our own bodies and our own sexuality. Usually you realize your kids have found the good spot pretty early in life and you walk in and there they are in the crib grinning while they're touching themselves. And you go, okay, yeah, you found it. There's a very powerful mind-body connection made there, mine. If I pleasure myself, it's distracting, it's soothing, it relaxes me, it entertains me. It's so multifunctional, my goodness. When that with time is accompanied by orgasm, sexual imagery, sexual connection, you know what happens? A very powerful mine is being developed. Mine. And then if we are interrupted by God, we come into a new covenant and we agree, my body is not my own, I get it. Therefore, not mine, thine. But when we say that, isn't it true that often we think in terms of, well, my body belongs to God? That means my hands, my head, my feet, my shoulders. It almost seems blasphemous to think that could mean anything below my waist. Which makes it a lot easier to say that is still mine. Which I believe is why so many Christians are able to compartmentalize and say the private erotic pleasure that's still mine. What does God want with this? The rest of it, that's God's. And this is exactly why God challenges that, that myth of autonomy when he says basically, no, in this covenant, all of what you are is mine, which is why there, I, I believe one of the most relevant things the modern church can do is help people be better stewards of their own sexuality. That's why I do believe our sexuality is a primary discipleship issue. And one of the most relevant things we can do in the church is instruct people. It is in your own best interest to be living your life in harmony with what your creator intended for your own benefit. Which leads to the fourth rationale, and that is 
honorable stewardship. I mentioned this last night. Every believer has a mandate of honorable stewardship. First Thessalonians 4, 3 to 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you be, that you possess your vessel with honor. You possess your vessel with honor. Just a personal note. I found this very meaningful when I understood that honorable stewardship means on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-by-hour basis, I am honoring God with my responses. Now this morning, it was wonderful having the worship team. I loved that. We, we honored God, didn't we, with our bodies. We yielded our voices, our thoughts, some of us our hands, Everything in the body was saying, I acknowledge you. I worship you. I love you. I recognize your attributes. And in gratitude, I express myself to you. That was worship. It's wonderful. Well, you know, every temptation resisted is also an act of worship. I acknowledge you. I love you. I recognize your grace. And I yield to your ownership. And that, to me, takes resisting temptation out of the negative and makes it an experience of worship. If I strive to reach a point where I'm never tempted, then resisting temptation is like, oh man, how disgusting I'm dealing with a temptation. But when it's an act of worship, it's like, Lord, I'll admit nothing is hidden from you. I would like to indulge in a sexual fantasy. I would like to lust. I would like to flirt. I do crave that just as I sometimes crave 20 glazed donuts. Okay, the cravings, they would take me in the wrong direction. But I acknowledge you. I love you. I recognize your authority. And what happens then? Resisting sexual temptation, it becomes an act of love that binds me closer to God. That doesn't mean I become non-sexual, and it doesn't mean I'm exempt from temptations. But what I find is that God blesses and honors that moment when we say, Lord, it's yours. I know what I want, but I want you more. And that is the difference between my appetite and my hunger. My hunger represents what I really need. My appetite represents my cravings, which are frequently not in my own best interest. Let me then look briefly with you at what I call a five-point plan for walking with integrity. I call it route, R-O-U-T-E. Repentance, order, understanding, training, endurance. And I'll look briefly with you at each of these. Route. Let's start with repentance. I believe repentance is the beginning of true change. I believe that when we are ready to repent, that is when we are ready to renounce what is sinful and or unhealthy in our lives. And of course, if it is sinful, it is unhealthy. If it is unhealthy, it is sinful. It is both. But what's going to get anyone to reach a point of renouncing something unless they have not first reached a point of repentance? Repentance happens when we are positioned in Christ and we are experiencing sanctification. True. So I come to Christ. I am born again. Now, initially, I understand there is repentance even in the rebirth experience because there's the recognition of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I I get that. But I don't believe our repentance is a historical event that happens one time. I believe it becomes a way of life as we keep moving ahead in sanctification because what happens as we are being sanctified, 
We are sanctified in that God set us apart. And positionally, we are in Christ. We're seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus in heavenly places. He sees us complete in him because he, of course, is not bound by time and space as we are. So he can see the finished product. That's a lovely thought, isn't it, by the way? I, if I've seen a really suspenseful movie and I really liked it, I'll watch it again when it comes on pay-per-view. I can enjoy it in a whole different way then because I saw the end. I know it's going to be okay. How could Jesus say my peace I give unto you? Because he saw the end of your movie. <laughs> I mean, he sees you at the finish line when it's all complete. And, and I, I, love, I love to just consider God is not pacing heaven thinking, oh, what are we going to do about Joe Dallas? Peter, Gabriel, come here. What do you do with this guy? I'm scared to death. No. Now, you and I, we can grieve God. That's true. We can break the heart of God and we can make God angry. That's true. That's all true. But no, God's not worried about us. God has seen the end of our movie. He knows the outcome. That is true. So we're positioned in Christ. We are sanctified and set apart, and we are being sanctified experientially. Our position is settled. We are sanctified, and we are experientially being sanctified. Why today are some things unacceptable to you that were acceptable to you five years ago? Sanctification. Like, can you imagine what would happen to you and I if God turned on all the spotlights at the same time and we saw all of our sin at the same time? Good night. I'd go comatose. So what does he do? By grace, the more we walk, the more we grow, the more is revealed and the more we realize. Sanctification is a lifelong process. What is a part of sanctification? Correction. We know that. So Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The author of Hebrews said, if you're not corrected, you're illegitimate. Of course, correction is a part of the program. And that's when God shines a light on something and says, I call you to turn from this. So God sends a crisis of truth. Repentance is generated when God sends a crisis of truth. That crisis of truth may come internally by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or it may come externally by situations. By the time a man comes into my office and says, Joe, I got a problem with porn. I want to renounce it and walk free of it forever. Almost always that man has first had a crisis of truth because he was comfortable with this porn. Uh, we can get very comfortable with our sin, but God was not comfortable with this porn. God convicted him from within and the man ignored that conviction, or he thought that conviction, well, it was an internal crisis, he could ignore it. And then God at times allows an external crisis to get his attention. All of a sudden, his wife walks in when he didn't know she was home. Or something else happens. There's an external crisis of truth. And that generates within the person the willingness to turn. Wherever there's repentance, to repent is to turn from and towards. Very important part. That's why Jesus said, your hand offends you, cut it off. Your eye offends you, pluck it out. When you repent, you turn from what is unacceptable and toward what is healthy and right. So you reject through separation, which is why anytime a guy says, I'm repenting of a particular sin, I want to say what John the Baptist said. Bring forth, therefore, fruit worthy of repentance. Repentance is not just about attitude. It is about action. 
I'm always glad to hear a guy say, I'm sorry, that's an attitude. But I always want to hear action too. So what have you done to separate yourself from that sin? And what have you done to help prevent it from happening again? That's repentance. Critical part. Now, when a person turns from and toward, that person must accept a sad fact of life. We are always inclined to default to where we have been for a number of reasons. One of them is that although we may reject something with our heart, that has not deleted it from our memory banks. The option is still there so long as the memory is intact. Now, just for example, I am from a migraine family. And I learned early in life, my mother got them, my brother still gets them. I haven't had one in some years now, I'm grateful to say, but I've, I've had my share. And good grief, they're, they're debilitating, they're horrible. Now, what I did learn was that there are uh, warning signs. If I start like seeing bright lights, if I'm looking around the room and certain parts of the room are like exploding, and I'm getting a light buzzing in my, in my ears, and I feel a little flushed, that's like a warning sign, migraine coming on. Now, years ago I learned that if I get about 10 Excedrin extra strength tablets, crush them all up, and uh, pour them in a cup of coffee, it sounds tasty, doesn't it? I know, but hey, whatever, I'd, I'd drink cyanide to get rid of a migraine, I really would. If I do that, make some strong coffee, crush up the Excedrin, put it in there, and drink that potion down, Frequently, if I catch it early enough, that will abort the migraine. It'll open up the veins in the back and ah, I'll make it if I get it in time. So what happens now whenever I feel the symptoms of a migraine coming on, my brain says, etc., etc., etc. Likewise, when I was a boy, I discovered that when I looked at porn, I would forget my pain. I would feel comforted and I would feel exhilarated. I'm 65, and yet to this day, when I feel uncomfortable, when I feel resentful, when I feel frightened, and I want something to make me feel better, although it's been nearly 40 years since I've used this stuff, my brain still says, porn, porn, porn. What the heart has rejected, the brain has recorded. Thereby, I must always be aware of the default principle. I am inclined to default back to where I've been. Why do you think Moses was so specific with the children of Israel when he got a glimpse of the promised land before God took him home? Then he made that beautiful speech to all of them, and part of it was remember. Remember what you did. Remember how you rebelled. Remember how you murmured. Remember how you divided. Now, what was he doing? Was he being a sadist, drumming their nose in it? No, he was saying, don't forget what you're capable of. Because if you enter into the promised land and you conquer where you're called to conquer and then you start getting comfortable and you think, okay, we've arrived and you stop being watchful, what's gonna happen? You're gonna default. That's why I'm a firm believer in that saying, the high price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Why? Because there are plenty of forces out there that want to take our freedom. And so it is with our personal liberty and freedom. 
Whatever freedom I have attained, I must also maintain. I must accept that as a part of my repentance. That's why when I repented, I knew it's not just enough to cut off the ties I need to cut off, throw out the porn, move into another area. I still have to deal with myself. I will crave what I should not indulge in. Thereby, I have to make preparation for the cravings when they come. Hence the need for accountability, close relationship, ongoing intimacy with God, honesty on my part, all of which is necessary, I believe, if we are going to retain the freedom that we have attained. We have to accept the default principle. We also have to accept, sadly, the uh, principle of corruption. In this life, are we naturally inclined to get better? Do things naturally improve? No, just the opposite. Everything's in a constant state of decay in this fallen world. Look at your yard. I mean, man, yeah, right now you get a pass, I know. <laughs> but no, you can take all the time you want, make it lush and beautiful and trim it and what have you. Now, if you get it to a certain point and you just leave it, what's going to happen? Is it going to naturally keep getting more beautiful and lush? Of course not. It will naturally decay. Anything you don't keep investing in decays. Look at your body. How many books have been written saying, if you carefully follow this seven-step plan, you too can get flabby? Nobody wrote that book. Why? Nobody has to. What do you have to do to get flabby? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was a time I worked out in a gym with professional bodybuilders. Some of them were national champions. They were, I mean, these were magnificent creatures, you know. And I joined the gym because a friend had advised it and got me in, and it really upped my game. Now, I was never like them, but my workouts got more intense than ever before. But I always felt like the little nerd in the gym next to the big, I mean, slinging around 400, 500 pounds, and I'm in there with my little 20 pounds, you know. And I always felt very small. Now, a lot of them still live in my county, and it's been more than 30 years. And every so often I run into them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it just just breaks my heart to say that. I mean, it really kills me. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Well, obviously, what happened, what was attained, was not maintained. But that's the natural way of things, isn't it? That's why, if I'm looking at my integrity, my moral and spiritual and sexual integrity, no, it will not automatically stay intact. I have to keep investing in it. But, and let me leave it on this because this to me is a critical point. This investment is one which God initiates and sustains and completes. All three. Initiates, sustains, completes. It is a process God initiated. I love the way Paul put this to the Ephesians According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Those are amazing words. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That alone you could land on and dwell on for days. Chosen before the foundation of the world. There's nothing poetic in what Paul is saying. It's very literal. It means that before anything that was created was created, you were both seen and chosen. Before God said, let there be light, he saw you and said, yes. I see this woman. I see this man. I see these people. I take into account fully. I have a full understanding of where they will fully mess up. I take into account the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I say, yes, I choose. There was just a hint of that in what Jesus said to Simon Peter when he first met him. And he said that your, your name is Simon Barjona. That's the emphasis on your humanity. You will be called Kephas, the rock. Because I see you where you are and I see what I will make of you. And that is the creator's prerogative. Now here's where I take heart when I think of my own sanctification. It is my creator's prerogative to take this hunk of clay and fashion it into something which will glorify him. Now, my wife got me into these movies, or not movies, these shows, uh, WGTV, you see them where they do the house thing. Uh, the, the guys, they blow me away. They see a fixer-upper and they say, okay, we're going to get the family out of there for a while. Leave us alone. We are going to take over and fashion something out of that that you couldn't conceive. And there's always the wonderful moment at the end where they have the big panels up in front of the house and you see what it was. And then they finally pull that away and you're like, whoa, look at that. Now, you, you, you know what? You know what you don't say when you look at that? That house is brilliant. Look at how that house reshaped itself. Look at all the work that house put into itself. That house deserves credit. Of course not. Who are you crediting? The artist. Look at what these people did. How amazing they are. Why shouldn't our creator glorify himself by fashioning us in ways we could never fashion ourselves so that people get breathless and say, look at what God did. That's the power of the transformed life. Not the individual. The focus it puts on the artist. Look what he did. So with all that in mind, I take heart in what Paul said. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice chose. I mean, a lot of us, well, I don't know. A lot of you look like people who probably know something about being chosen and good for you. You who are smart and attractive and personable and have it all going for you. Uh, and I'm glad. Good for you. <laughs> that wasn't my story. Not all of us have your story. You may have had a lot of experience being chosen. A lot of us could tell you our experience has been being tolerated. We've been put up with. Chosen 
is when the captains of the basketball team are saying, I want that one, okay, I want that one, okay, well, then I get that one, okay, I get that one, I get that one, I get that one. Tolerated is when Dallas is standing there alone and they go, oh, uh, okay, toss a coin, who gets stuck with him? That's not being chosen. That's being put up with. That's why the first time I read Jesus saying, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. <sighs> are you kidding me choosing him, that makes perfect sense, but that's not what happened, is it? He chose me. Primarily, I know out of love for me, out of love for you. I get that. That was the first priority. But there is another priority we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore. God loves to glorify himself through his people. Only God can say, I make no apologies for wanting to be glorified. And he made that very plain. My glory I will not share with another. Right on. He shouldn't. But yes, he should be glorified. How does he glorify himself today in this fallen world? He takes his creation, chooses it, and says, I will make you from this into this. And everybody goes, I love thinking that then this whole process he initiated, it was his idea, not mine. And he sustains it. He sustains it. I, I love the way David put that. Psalm 138.8. Thy mercy, O Lord, endures forever. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Don't give up on me. You are still working on me. And why am I so confident he is going to finish what he began? Because he's sustaining it now. The way David put it implies a lot, doesn't it? Forsake not the work of thine own hands. What does that imply? Because I would be inclined to forsake it. And I will be the first to admit, I'd throw in the towel plenty of times. The depression hits, the discouragement hits, the temptations hit, the whatever hits. And you can fill in the blanks, financial difficulty, an unhappy marriage, an ungrateful kid, a weird boss, a disease, something that makes life very hard. That's when the human vessel is very inclined to say, I will forsake this because I'm sick of it all. And that's why I have to say, Lord, when I am ready to give up, don't you give up on me. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. I am especially inclined to feel like giving up when I'm being corrected because I feel like I'm being punished. And that's, not, that's really not what's happening. When God takes a woman and corrects her and says, this is sin, you are wrong, I confront this in your life, or a man and says the same, we are the ones who are likely to faint and go, oh, it hit the fan, I've been exposed, I'm vulnerable, this is seen now and it all looks tragic, And you know, but what, what is really happening there? Why, no, no, the, the, the individual is being corrected, not punished. You take a race car that has a problem, and what do you do? You pull it over for a pit stop. Why do you pull it over for a pit stop? To correct the problem. Why do you want to correct the problem? To get that sucker back in the race. You're not punishing the car. You're not devaluing the car. In fact, the fact that you pulled it over means you value the car. You value it so much, you will not allow this problem to continue and diminish it anymore. You will pull it over for a pit stop. You will make the adjustments that are necessary so it can get back into the race. Why? Because you still have purposes for that vehicle. 
That's why I find so often it's necessary to remind someone God's chastening is never the end. It's the proof that it's not the end. When the owner is done with the car, does he pull it over for a pit stop? Of course not. He junks the sucker. It's done. You don't correct something if you are finished with it. When you're finished with it, it's out. That's the beauty of recognizing, Lord, you're not going to forsake the work of your own hands. This is a process he began, a process he sustains, and a process he will complete. Being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. I believe one of the greatest miracles you and I have experienced is the transformation of our rebellion into submission. If I want God's will, if I am still willing to face what is not God's will in my life, if I will even allow God into the most intimate parts of my life, my sexual desires, my thoughts, my responses, and I will say, this too is yours. Well, what the heck is that if not proof of the new nature I've been given? And I find great encouragement in that. If I struggle with sin, if I'm foolish, I will say, well, that obviously means I'm a sleazeball. I prefer to say, though, what Paul said. The spirit wars against the flesh, the flesh wars against the spirit. Why? Because I have a new nature which will never be satisfied with sin. If there was no new nature, there would be no struggle. The struggle is the proof of the new nature. Why do I even care? Because to steal the phrase of people who believe everything I don't believe, I have to be true to myself. You will hear people constantly say, I had to embrace this identity. I had to embrace this behavior. Often they'll even say, I had to leave my marriage. I had to leave my church. I had to walk away from everything that I had been responsible for because I had to be true to myself. I had to be true to myself. So do I. And what I have learned is that to be true to myself is to look at the nature I cannot get away from because I have never been able to permanently successfully get away from it. I don't believe you have either. How many times have you said no to something that you really loved? How many times have you made a decision that was so hard and following through on it required so much of you, you started asking yourself, am I nuts? Why did I do that? Your new nature. It compels you to be true to who you really are. And I find comfort in that because, and I'll leave it at this for now, I recognize that whatever joy I find in that new nature, whatever peace comes from that communion I have with God, whatever core strength is coming from being true to the nature he has created in us, that is only a foretaste. John said there will come the point where we will know as we are known. We will see him as he is. We will be known as we are known. 
that tells me that what I hate about this life, and there is a lot about this life I hate, I loathe much about this life, and there is much about me that I loathe. I'll be free from all of it. This corruptible will put on incorruption, and this mortal will put on immortality, and we will see him face to face, and everything that now stresses us, bothers us, frightens us, anguishes us, all gone, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every moment of victory I have is a foretaste of what is going to be business as usual when all of this is over. And that's when I can go along with Paul and say, okay, our momentary light affliction eh, works in exceedingly eternal weight and glory. There's a lot to look forward to. The struggle we experience with sanctification is a blessed reminder of that. Okay, I think we want to break for lunch now. You have some directions about where we go and what we do? Okay. Mm-hmm.